Welcome to the Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, Joe Slack, and joining me today is Tristan Rossin, illustrator, graphic designer, game designer, and publisher. Tristan, thanks so much for being here on the Board Game Binge. It's a pleasure to be here, Joe. Well, we have a little bit of a history uh, together. Um, we worked on a couple games, so well, more than more than a couple now. Um, you helped mm-hmm. me out with all the illustrations and graphic design and and everything behind Relics of Rajbahara and the expansion Montello's Revenge and my most recent project, Fourteen Frantic Minutes, where you did all that and the rulebook as well. So, um, always a pleasure to uh, to chat with you and see what you're up to. Yeah, it's it's great to be here, and there have been great projects to work on. Um, it's always great when you give me a call and say, Tris, I've got a game. So, yeah, you give me the freedom to uh, be a bit more creative. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to get on board with those games. Fantastic. Maybe you can let the viewers and listeners know uh, who don't know you a little bit more about yourself, how you got into board gaming and how that led into um, kind of the board game design world for you. Okay. Um, so... About five years ago, I was um, made redundant from a company where I was head of design and marketing. Um, But prior to that, I've been working in the education industry for 15 years, doing uh, illustrative work and uh, stuff for children's resources and stuff like that. Um, So um, once I was made redundant, I uh, I spent um, about a year in the wilderness just um, working on graphic design projects for other companies, your typical graphic design stuff. Um, and then one day, my, my daughter came home with a board game she'd been designing uh, with uh, with my with my parents, um, and I just thought it was really charming and endearing. And, and I love board games anyway. Um, and at the same time, I was developing uh, a children's book, um, and it was one of these projects that was going to go to the never never. It was I'd like where I'd got, but I was kind of stuck and I knew that it would end up just being on a pile to one side for, for forevermore. So I just thought, why not introduce those graphics and start developing my own board game? Um, it, it would be a quick way to turn around the artwork. Um, it would mean that I was no longer stuck on the narrative of the book that I was designing and see if I could come up with something special with it. And it it did. That, that, um, that was taken on on my first published game with, with Skybound, uh, which was Pebble Rock Delivery Service. Um, and um, it moved on from there. Um, that was um, that got uh, quite a lot of feedback. The community became very engaged with that project. And uh, from there on, I just picked up projects after projects after projects. And here I am today, full-time designer in the board game industry. It's fantastic. And uh, like we talked about, you have so many different roles. You've published games, you've designed games, you've done illustration and graphic design for games. How do you decide whether you want to do the publishing, the designing, um, or or just the illustrations for a game when uh, when you come up with something or an idea is presented to you? Um, well, first, I'm a bit of a control freak. So um, I have... Um, I have faith in others, but I have more faith in myself than others. I've got a clear track on where I want to go. So I'm very quick to dive in and do lots of jobs. Um, historically, um, the companies that I've been involved with before board games were all startup companies, which meant that you had to dive in and learn um, at all levels. And, you know, so you were, you know, basically the CEO and the T-boy at the same time. Um, and I guess that mindset has never left me. So um, 
with regards to diving in on projects, it's, it's normally I work for other people. Um, well, half the time I work for other people and it's what their requirements are because I can cover a lot of bases. So we'll have a discussion about whether they need hand with just the graphic design and illustration or if they need help with the marketing side and the Kickstarter and everything else that goes into that. Um, and limited knowledge on, on publishing. I'm, I'm not the, the world's greatest publisher, but I, I, I've got a bit of experience in that now, so I can I can step in and help there as well. So it's I guess it's just down to experience and skill set. I'm, I'm available to do those jobs, and um, invariably, if you can source them in one place, being myself, then that's what happens a lot of the time when I'm working with other people. Um, and of course, with my own projects, there's no point in bringing anybody in if I can do it all myself. It just means lots of time. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm. I'm a control freak over my own projects. So yeah, yeah, if I can do it, I'll do it. Yeah, and there's there's very few people that can do all that, that can design a game, publish it, and do the art uh, and design for it as well. I mean, Ryan Lockett's one of the very few people, you're one of the other very few people that I can think of that could actually take a game from start to finish. Um, so, you know, you have all these different roles that you're playing with different games, with different publishers and, and your own stuff. How do you allocate your time between all of these? Um, I, I don't, I'm the world's worst timekeeper. Um, as you probably know, because you've been asking me to do bits and bobs and I'm like, oh, Joe, I'm so busy at the moment. I just need to do this. Um, I, I'm terrible with um, my own time and my wife will, will testify to this because I'll be working from first thing in the morning and then at 11 o'clock at night, I'll go, oh, I've just got an idea and I'll be straight back at the computer until two in the morning doing stuff. So um, I don't know if there's um, an answer to that. It's chaotically is <laughs> very much um the word i would use but it works for me i'm i'm very much um the messy desk designer um you know bits of paper thrown everywhere and and very very scatterbrained but it somehow works for me um i think when you're working on your own project um there's a natural progression to things anyway you know you you obviously have to get the, the game design correct and then come up with initial sketches and ideas of what the style is, whether that suits the audience. Um, and from there, you know, the developing of the physical, um, it, I do it slightly the, the other way around. So I, I do illustration for games first and then fit in the graphic design where common sense, common sense dictates that you should really do the graphic design first and then fit in the illustration because, you know, the, the, the UI of the game is the ultimately the important thing, how clear the information is that you're showing. Um, but um, because I've got experience in both illustration and graphic design, I, I, I sort of illustrate with graphic design in mind and it kind of works for me. Okay. Yeah, so. yeah I know um, Jamie Stegmaier, one of the things he does, is he always likes to see some art. So he'll like commission at least some of the art to kind of see and have a, a feel for it so he can um, better design the game. He has a better understanding of where it's going to go and, and has that kind of feel. So I can uh, appreciate that, that uh, that might help keep you motivated or or give you other ideas once you kind of see how it's going to look. Yeah, 100% that. Um, if I've got an idea of the world that I'm working in, um, you you become, um, you start to become enchanted by it. It's, it's, a, it's a very good way of being inspired to have that initial artwork up front. Um, and it's the good thing with illustrating um, the game first and coming up with these ideas is that it's you're working on the game, but it's procrastination time. It's time where, as you're illustrating, you're actually thinking about how the mechanics work and 
how the graphic design is going to be implemented into that. So um, it's quite productive on that level to have that that thinking time because you, you don't think 100% while you're illustrating. You always go into a trance with it, you know, so <laughs> gives you that time to uh, to think of the, the deeper parts of the game. Yeah, and really finding a way to mesh or match the the theme and the mechanics is so important because that can really make a more immersive experience for players if the theme and the mechanics are really, really well aligned. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that's everything to it. I mean, you've got to feel a, a bit like Relics of Raja Vahara. You've, you've got to feel like you're, um, you know, that Indiana Jones character. You know, back in the 1940s, going exploring the, these long-forgotten tombs and mm-hmm. and um, being in there trying to solve these puzzles, um, you know, it has to have that feel. Um, and 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 it's almost more about the feel than it is about the gameplay itself. Because if you if you can sit there and go, you can sit there and go, I'm going to have a game tonight, or you can sit there and go, I'm going to have an adventure tonight. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try and evoke with the illustration and the, the design of these games. I think that escapism. Yeah, that, that's a really, really great way to uh, to put it, for sure. Um, I want to switch gears for a little bit and talk a little bit about um, print-and-play games because we've seen mm-hmm. um, that print-and-play games as campaigns, you know, some are coming out and that's that's the only option. It's just a print-and-play game, and it's become a more and more popular thing for, I think, for multiple reasons. Um, you know, it's it's there's no manufacturing costs. It's very easy to get it to players uh, right away. They don't have to wait, you know, a year or a year and a half for her game to be delivered. And we've seen some other uh, companies or individuals come out and be been uh, successful doing it this way. Um, Postmark Games is one that comes to mind with their voyages in Aquamarine. Yeah. Um, more recently, Nobox Games, new companies come out with uh, Spies that got funded on Kickstarter and uh, more continue to come out. And your upcoming game, um, A Wayfarer's Tale, uh, is going to be coming on Kickstarter. Uh, it's actually going to launch tomorrow. By the time uh, this interview goes live, um, it will already be um, on Kickstarter. Uh, I'm assuming it'll probably be funded. And I just want to know, um, why did you decide to launch this game um, in this way? Um, th- there's there's multiple reasons. Um, I think, one, I've tried the traditional route in the past. And... Um, I'll be the first to hold my hands up and after that experience, recognize my limitations. I'm a creative, um, I've got no issues with designing the games and everything that goes with it. But when it comes to the bit that involves Excel sheets and and working out um, uh, freight costs and and manufacturing and distribution and fulfillment, um, I I lose my head. It's just not me. Um, The last one nearly gave me a nervous breakdown quite literally. Um, and um, so I made a firm decision that if anything's going to market at a physical level, it's going to be me selling onwards to a publisher. Um, but this way still keeps my hat in the ring. I can put a game out there um, at a publishing level where I can just literally email the game to people at the end and they get it within days. So there's there's no pressure or stress. I mean, that's the, the simplest thing in the world to do. Um, so, so that was the main reason. Um, the other reason is just the uh, global economics um, at the moment, and what have you. The, the the cost of having a game built, even if you go to China and get it built under the the, the cheapest circumstances possible, has still more than doubled over the past couple of years. And then you're looking at freight costs rising by over a thousand percent since 
2020. I mean, it's so the costs and the margins are becoming insane. Um, now, that's not to say it can't be done, but it's harder if you're sort of a smaller indie company. Um, you know, you, you haven't got the big, big numbers to, to mitigate those costs as much. So you're taking large hits and uh, your margin for error is is much, much smaller. Um, so, yeah, um, really, um, I love what I do. So I want to mitigate anything within that that is stressful and just do the bits that I love, which means produce a game and deliver it to people and they can print it out in five minutes and it's ready to play. Um, and that was our mindset with The Wayfarer's Tale. So there are one or two 3D assets that you can print out and use, but they're 100% optional. The, the objective of this is that there's no scissors, there's no glue, there's no mither. You literally print off the pages and that's it. The game is there in front of you and you're playing it five minutes after you've received the files. Um, so so there's a double level. It's easy for me and it's easy for anybody that buys into the game. So. That's great. And uh, I mean, you, you brought up some really good points there. One of them being uh, you recognize after having published a game, all the things that go into it. And there are some things in there that you don't have uh, either the skill set or the the uh, the urge to do again <laughs> because yeah. it wasn't your thing. And I think that that's a really important thing. And it's I think it's it's really good that people try different things um, and they might discover some, they're really good at something or they really enjoy something. But other times you're going to discover no this this is not me. This is not something I want to do again. It was a big headache. And then realize what you want to really focus on. Um, and I think a lot of people just, you know, will put their game up on Kickstarter or somewhere else, not realizing exactly how much of involvement they're going to have to be uh, getting into with manufacturing and fulfillment and freight shipping. And there, that there's so many moving parts um, that it's yeah. no longer game design. It's com a completely different thing. So um, it's fantastic that you've had the opportunity to try it and then recognize what what you want to do and what you don't want to focus your time on and, and really uh, focus on those things. Yeah, I mean, that's not saying never say never um, from the point of view that while I am where I am, which is a, a, a solo board game company, me, I am the company, you know. So um, from that perspective, I cover everything. Um, so if this gets bigger, if it expands, if I get people on board, then I can get other people to take on those responsibilities and I'd be more than happy to look at physical games. But right now in my Current circumstance, I'm quite happy with print and play. And I think it's got um, a, a bigger future now anyway. I think people recognise um, the things I've just mentioned, um, you know, because um, those additional costs are uh, um, a burden for the backer. You know, you're paying a, a lot more for ship. Well, shipping is generally more than the games these days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and games are, are, are going up in cost as well. So... Um, I think people are more willing to look at that, you know, small five-minute inconvenience of printing it or getting it printed online and, and delivered to them the next day um, for far less than it would cost to ship a game anyway um, is a viable option. Yeah, I think there there's some real benefits with that, uh, you know, being able to print and use it right away. Um, also, as we were talking about manufacturing and, and the cost that go into that, if you make a mistake, a card has to be reprinted, there's something wrong in the board, and you have to ship it all out to, to backers after the fact again, that's going to cost you a fortune to have to resend things. Whereas if, you know, somebody noticed something in a print and play file that looked just a bit off, well, you just update the file, let people know. 
um, they just print off a new copy. I mean, it's it's so much easier that way as as well as you know saving all the cost of freight and all the time and all the resources that go into that. So I, I think it's it is become a viable option. And like you said, the easier it is the more likely people are going to be into it. Like if you just have to print a page as opposed to printing off 30 sheets and having to cut round circles and adding, you know, 50 different items, you know, the easier you can make it if it's just more of a roll and write or just a, a printable sheet, um, you can laminate it. You could use it on your, uh, your digital device, like an iPad or something like that. There's just so many more options um, to make it more environmentally friendly and just easier for, for the user as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it needs a step change from a lot of people that are into board games. I, I, I don't think it's um, it's a common sense sell, but I don't think it's an easy sell because people think, oh, just get it, order a game and it'll come in the post in a few days' time and I'll open it up and it's in a big shiny box and it's ready to go. Um, but um, yeah, I think it has merit and I think more people are starting to think that way. You know, I mean, like you've already mentioned, I think the big one is that once our Kickstarter is finished, we can have this delivered within a week or two weeks rather than six, 12 months down the line after everything's been done um, and all the headaches that go with that. So, so it's a very easy buy-in because we put the, um, we transferred the cost that we saved um, into reducing the value of the game. So you're talking uh, the price of a cup of coffee, you know, a trip to Starbucks is your entry level for this game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get it within two weeks of the Kickstarter ending. So um, we're hoping with this that, you know, those are very low barriers. So it's almost people will look at the projects and if they, they have an inkling that they're going to like it because that price point is so low, they'll just go, well, what the hell? It's, it's $5. <laughs> you know, it's worth, the, it's worth the risk because, you know, it's, it's such low entry. So, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely uh, true. It's it's a really low entry point. I mean, people are willing to take that. It's almost more of an impulse buy. You're going to spend four or five dollars on something. Much much easier to do that than say, do I want to spend a hundred dollars on a game with all these minis? And maybe it's going to be another fifty for shipping. And maybe that'll go up. Who knows? You know, that could always change. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about a Wayfarer's Tale. How does how does the game play? Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so it's um, a, a roll and write, but we've tried to step away from the normal roll and write tropes. Um, so roll and writes have got, uh, are historically quite famous for being um, uh, very much luck-orientated dice chucking games. And the, the, the dice chucking is very much still in there. But um, the objective of the game is that you're given a, a series of islands, which are, are in the form of maps. And... Um, your objective on the map is to explore the island and visit all the towns. Um, and it's the first person to do that, um, although it's, it can also be played um, solo, um, um, is is the winner. Um, but what you have that makes it different is that you have a series of companions and you have a companion sheet. And these companions um, specialise in different types of terrain. So you'll have um, uh, an adventurer that can travel into jungles and mountains and uh, you'll have uh, a coachman that can uh, travel across um, grasslands and, and what have you. So they all have different skills and they all have different ways of activating those skills. So um, on one of them, it might be that you have to roll higher than the dice roll that you rolled before in order to activate them. So it's constantly going up and it, it 
therefore becomes harder to use. Um, others have um, uh, grid mechanics where you have to fill out a grid, but within that grid there are um, it rewards uh, like treasure to find, but there's also monsters in there that, that lower your score because you've got to mm. fight the monster and take a, a negative um, result for that and what have you. So, um, But what the beauty of it is is that it becomes a very thinky game as you move along because you have a limited amount of um, companions which can use certain terrains, a map with um, a certain amount of spaces that you have to traverse. So you have to think carefully about when you're using uh, these characters and where you're going to travel to and, and how you use those dice. So it, it's nice because it has meaningful decisions to make rather than that look of the dice uh, and what have you that, that, that can happen in, in Roll and Write. So we're, we're hoping it gives us more of a big box feel um, than your standard games. And uh, from the reviews we've been getting, we're definitely getting that, that feedback back that this is much more of a game than your standard Roll and Write, which has um, a reputation for being a bit of a, you know, a 20-minute throwaway, bit of a brain teaser in the evening. This It's got more substance to it, and uh, I hope that sort of recognises people see the game and look at the reviews moving forwards. Nice. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a, like a step up and an innovative uh, way to do a, a, a roll and write uh, style of a game. So I, I know I'm going to be backing that. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to, awesome. uh, to trying it out as well. Um, now, I know for this project as well, um, James Emerson is the designer of the game. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so I've worked with James a couple of times in the past. Um, so uh, James is the guy that developed uh, Tranquility. Um, and also um, another game that's coming out soon, which is a it's a it's a, um, a predecessor. Um, oh, sorry, not predecessor. Um, it, it, it's the next one in the series, which is uh, Tranquility: The Ascent. Um, so they're both very clever thinking games. Um, James, uh, when he's not doing board games, is um, a, a maths teacher, and that shows in his game design. He's very clever at working out you know what the limitations of the game are within a role and write and what rules will work within a mathematical framework which means that everything ultimately works right if it's done in that in that manner um so yeah it's it's great working with him um and um yeah i'm very fortunate to have uh, grabbed him this time and uh, in think of me for this game yeah Fantastic. And I, I noticed that the game is actually under his name on Kickstarter as opposed to uh, Bright Light Games, which is your is your company. Was there any conscious decision around that or did you just go at, go ahead and just say, oh, let's let's build it. We're just doing it together anyways. Yeah, it, that's basically the, the reason behind it. Well, the, there wasn't actually. We just started developing it under under James's um, Kickstarter because there is no publication with this really. It's It's basically a case of is the Kickstarter, and ultimately we'll we'll give you the files afterwards. So, um, yeah, it just conspired that way. So, so yeah, yeah, fantastic. And I know it's going to be going live um, tomorrow uh, compared mm -hmm. to how how we're uh, talking now. Um, and you have almost two thousand followers pre-launch. That's what I saw this morning. Um, how were you able to build up such an audience for this game and so quickly? Um. I think I always put marketing into uh, in mind from the very first sketch. 
the very first idea. Um, so I've been building on this game for the past six or seven months. And within the Facebook communities that are in sport games and what have you, I've been posting about the game. I've been asking them about development, asking them questions, and getting people invested in the game. And I think a large part of why I get um, relatively high numbers, um, I mean, it's not like the real big players, but, um, you know, it's, it's good numbers. It is because people know about the game. They've been following it. And, um, you know, maybe somebody's seen a piece of the artwork and said, you know, that that's quite good, but I think it'd be better if that cake was in blue. And I've mm. taken that on board and done it. And the minute I do something like that, it's kind of, well, it, you know, I did that. <laughs> I'm invested. I'll buy into this game. This guy listens. So, so yeah, I, I, I take the community very seriously and I, I, I listen to what they say and take on board what their, uh, their, their, their suggestions and what have you. And I think that's a, a big part of our marketing strategy. I mean, there's um, standard marketing going on in the background um, as well. Um, so with that, um, you know, I'm throwing money into Facebook ads and, and stuff like that. Not huge numbers, but, um, you know, just enough to keep it ticking over. So there's the, the standard routes as well. Um, I've been writing blogs about it information as to why we've made a decision to go into print and play um, blogs about the making of the game um, and and how we've done that so just keeping people invested and interested really has been been the way to do it and it just um, I guess just try and be a nice guy about it really <laughs> you know don't don't um, a lot of people like to hide what they're doing you know it's going to be stolen um, you know, it's it's got to be top secret, and we'll tell you about the game a week before it's about to launch. And, mm -hmm. and I'm the opposite, and show everyone, you know, and uh, it seems to work. It seems to work for me. Yeah, and I think it's a really good approach. You know, showing your work, letting people know how it's coming along, and like you said, you're sharing this with other people, and you're getting their insights. When somebody says, "Oh, you know, I th I think like you said that you know that cape should be a different color, or you know maybe that shadowing should be a little different, you know these little minor suggestions," and you say, "Yeah, you know what, that makes total sense," and then you come back and you have another image. Yeah, I, I listened to what you said, and and what do you think of this? And people people will be like, "Wow, okay, like you're actually listening. You're not just posting it up there. Do you like A or B?" And, you know, you're going to go with which one, whichever one you'd already decided on or that type of thing. Like you're actually interested in what people um, have to say, what they want to contribute um, and making the game better. And you just keep, you know, showing and sharing. And that's one of the things I love working with you is you, you're not shy about putting it out there or getting other people's opinions. And I mean, it also serves to get people interested when they're seeing something, they're seeing something come to life from an early sketch to something that's colored into fully developed and then see how it all comes in as part of the game. It really can draw people in. So um, glad to see that you're doing that. Are, are there any other approaches that you, that you've taken um, along those lines that you found to be a, a super effective? Um, just, just that really, just keep, just keep people involved and engaged. And that, like you said, that don't, don't use it as an excuse to market. Um, I, I'll never be um, so um, bold as to think um, my experience in the industry and my skill set in the industry is the definitive way to do it. So I never post of thinking, you know, this is great, it's perfect, and uh, everyone will like it. And and I go into these things showing people stuff and saying, you know, I, I genuinely want your feedback. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean that I take on board every bit of feedback. Sometimes I think people are wrong or, or, you know, it can get a bit nitpicky about, you know, things that don't really matter that much. But, you know, um, 
every now and then I'll get these these golden nuggets of, of um, you know suggestions and, and and ideas that that completely change what I'm doing but, but improve it tenfold. Um, so so yeah, um, that's just the route I take. Um, it's very organic my my marketing strategy because um, it's not really born out of marketing. It's born out of the fact that um, I work from home alone. I've got nobody here to um, be a sounding board or to just, I can't just turn around and go, Hey, I've done this. What do you think of this? So, so um, the wider community out there that I, I uh, correspond with um, are my, um, my design team, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's very much um, a game design mindset as well. I mean, that that's the way you make a game better as a game designer too. It's not just, Going out there saying, "Oh, this is this is the best it can be. My my game is perfect." But to put it in front of other people, and like I said, you'll get all sorts of different feedback. And sometimes it'll be conflicting. Some some people will say, "I want this," and then some people say, "I want the opposite." So you can't go those different routes. You ultimately have to make the decision. But sometimes you'll get those little pieces of feedback. It's like, yeah, that really makes sense. That's going to make this game better, whether it's more visually appealing or the gameplay or or whatever goes along with it. So it's it's great to be open to those uh, other insights. So uh, I think we're going to wrap up here, but um, is there anything else you want to share about A Wayfarer's Tale that we didn't talk about yet? Um, no, but did I mention it's brilliant and you should go out and get it because it's just five pounds, which is roughly with the exchange rate now, especially that's that's roughly five dollars. So yeah, yeah, especially, especially uh, um, yeah, it's especially worth getting at the moment. Definitely. Fantastic. So look for A Wayfarer's Tale on Kickstarter, um, launching November 10th. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So it's uh, 4 p.m. Um, GMT. Um, so that's going to be early in the morning um, on, on the other other side of the pond, so to speak. So, so yeah, it should be firing up at, I think it's 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. Excellent. So by the time this um, interview is live, it'll already be live on there probably funded and going crazy and going viral. So get in on it uh, while you can. Um, and remember, you can get that game right away. It'll be, you know, uh, you don't have to wait for a year for uh, for manufacturing and shipping. So if it uh, appeals to you, make sure to check it out. So uh, Tris, thanks so much for uh, being part of Board Game Binge. And it was uh, great talking to you. Yeah, you too, Joe. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge podcast. Guest hosted by Joe Slack, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you'd like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our Instagram channel, Board Game Binge Podcast, and you'll get notifications of the live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. We can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.